Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Great to be able to be here and worship together. My name is Steve Garcia. I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise, and we just want to welcome you once again to attending this church. If this is your first time with us, I sure would love the opportunity to meet you. I'll be out in the courtyard just after the service, available to chat and to shake hands, pray with you, whatever, whatever you need. I'd love to be able to meet you. If you are one of our returning people, I don't care about talking to you. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> We love you. We just say welcome back. We're so thankful for you and for your faithful contribution to this uh, awesome church. So we've been going through a message series together uh, through the book of Revelation, and uh, today we're going to continue in that. I wonder how many of you guys remember this. April 15th, 2013, the city of Boston was gripped by fear and panic. Just about right around before 3 o'clock, as crowds were sort of swelling to the finish line of the Boston Marathon, a bomb exploded. Then 12 seconds later, in a second location, another bomb exploded. And instantly, chaos ensued. People began running in every direction. The bombers escaped into the crowd, and word quickly spread that another terrorist attack occurred on American soil. How many of us remember when that occurred? Yeah, it really captured the nation for several days, especially because a manhunt uh, ensued for these bombers. And then four days later, a police officer was killed on a nearby college campus by one of the suspected terrorists. And so instantly, the entire city of Boston went on lockdown. Everyone was told to shelter in place while this manhunt intensified. And, and this whole city was was gripped by fear at the thought that terrorists are at large in our backyard. And then a few hours later, a gunfight broke out between the police and the suspected terrorists. One of them was, was killed. The other one got away. And you remember this. Uh, about 6 o'clock the next night, they finally found the second bomber hiding in a boat in somebody's backyard. And after they finally caught the perpetrator and brought him into custody, the lockdown was lifted and the city was able to breathe again. And this perpetrator was arrested, brought to trial, found guilty on all counts, and sentenced to the death penalty. And in many ways, this terrorist attack in Boston is a shadow of the things to come. We've been talking about the book of Revelation, and the end times are going to be like the bombs going off. There are things that are going to happen on a global scale. Wars, plague, famine, cataclysmic events in nature, earthquakes, extreme heat, a third of the population being killed. And that's going to cause fear and panic in the world. And amidst all of this, a leader will rise to power who will bring stability to all of the chaos. This is the Antichrist. And it's all to groom people into the system he will institute where if you want to operate in mainstream society, you will need to willingly reject Jesus and worship the Antichrist by receiving a mark. This will make things very, very difficult for the people of God. Just like with the Boston Marathon, they will be gripped with fear knowing that 
the perpetrators are running wild. And if you're anything like me, when you hear about these events that the Bible describes are going to occur in our future, that's scary. It's pretty terrifying. But just like what happened in Boston, there is coming a time where the perpetrator will be caught, will be brought to justice, will receive his final sentencing, and the people of God will be able to breathe again. Judgment day is coming. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today as we continue with part five of our message series called Future Revealed. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, now would be a good time to get that out and make your way over to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today we're gonna start in chapter 17 and we're gonna work our way up through 20. And as you're making your way there, if this is your first time with us in this series, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, and he was exiled to a prison camp in Greece. And that's when Jesus appeared to him and gave him this vision for the future. So start writing it down. And so we're going to pick things up in Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 3. Read along with me. It says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, Revelation is filled with imagery and symbolism, and chapter 17 is no exception. We begin with a beast and a woman. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we spoke at length about the beast in part four of the series. That's the Antichrist. I encourage you to jump on our YouTube channel on Sunrise Church of California and get caught up on that message or you can go to our website at sunrisechurch.org and listen to the sermon audio. So we're not gonna spend much time talking about the beast today, but I do wanna talk about the woman. She is described as Babylon the Great. Now there's been a thousand theories as to what does Babylon truly represent. Many people believe that Babylon represents the Roman Empire, that it's going to re-emerge as a world force. Others believe Babylon to be literal Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. When Saddam Hussein was in power, this theory picked up a lot of steam. I believe that Babylon, described here in Revelation 17, is not a city, but a system. A system of godlessness, wickedness, and the bloodshed of God's people. Hallmarks of the kingdom that will one day be led by the Antichrist. In many ways, we already see this happening in our culture now. People openly mocking God, addicted to indulgence and sensuality, a lust for power. In many ways, we see the shadow of this now. So Babylon, I believe, represents a system. Now, those of you who know your Bibles well know that Babylon holds an integral part in biblical history. 
It was Babylon who came and invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, which was the, the, the representation of God's presence, ripped the people up out of their city and replanted them in Babylon, where they were indoctrinated with the Babylonian way. New gods, new customs, new rules. And a small percentage of the Jews who were replanted in Babylon were able to hold on to their identity, hold on to their worship of the one true God, but so many others just caved to the Babylonian way. They caved to the system of idolatry, indulgence, and injustice. And so Babylon became synonymous with rebellion, similar to how Sodom and Egypt were used in Revelation chapter 11. And so this this system, this prostitute, this Babylonian way was the dominant force of culture there for a while. But there comes a point in time where Jesus says, enough is enough. It's time to bring it all to an end. Today I want to look at three different judgments that occur towards the end of Revelation. Here's the first one. The judgment of depravity. That is what Babylon represents. Wickedness, rebellion, godlessness, and God's gonna bring an end to it. And for all of the people who bought into Babylon, who bought into the way, who bought into the system, this is how they're gonna respond when God brings the whole thing down. This is Revelation 18, verse one. It says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. There's coming a time where God's going to bring an end to all of this depravity. Babylon the great will become Babylon the gone. And all of the people who were, who were bought fully into this, this is what they'll do. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. So there's going to come a point in time where all of the people are going to realize the sex is gone. The money is spent. The well of indulgence has dried up. And they're going to weep and mourn and cry, not over the sin in their life, not over the system that gets exposed. They're going to weep and cry and mourn over the loss of their true love, excess. Jesus is going to bring the whole thing down. So, so what do we do with this today? You know, it, it's, 
It's very easy to look at the events in the book of Revelation and just dismiss them as something that, yeah, maybe this happens in my lifetime, maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm around for it, maybe I'm not. What can I do with this now? I wanna offer us a response to each of these three judgments, something that we can do in the present, even as we're awaiting the future. And so if you're taking notes, I think these are, are worth jotting down. Here's the first response to the judgment of depravity. Number one, join the right team. What do I mean by that? Let's read verse four of Revelation 19. It says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. So Jesus' voice thunders out of the heavens. And he says, everybody who got caught up in the Babylonian way, now's the time to get out. Now's the time to turn away. One of the predominant themes we see in the book of Revelation is repentance. There's still time. There's still time to get out. There's still time to turn your heart to Christ. This is the losing team. It's time to switch teams. Now, those of you who are sports fans, uh, you know that we have a term for people who are always following the winning team. We call them bandwagoners. And you all know somebody who's always jumping on the bandwagon. Some dude at your workplace last year is walking around with a Tom Brady jersey, acting like he's a lifelong Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. You're like, lifelong Tampa Bay fan? You're from Utah. <laughs> How is that possible? And this year he's walking around with an LA Rams jersey. And you're like, oh, okay. So now you're on the Rams bandwagon because they won the Super Bowl. Okay, got it. And like the true sports fans are the ones who say, no, we stick with our team through thick and thin, even when they're the worst team in the league, even when everybody's making fun of them, even when they're not doing anything worth watching, we stick with them. And in this passage in Revelation 19, Jesus is completely endorsing the bandwagoners. He's saying, jump on the winning team, burn the old jersey. Jump ship. Don't stick with the, with the team that's going down. This team is going to lose. Babylon is the wrong team. It's time to switch teams. It's time to get on Team Jesus. Because in the end, he wins. And that's the command for us today. And the question all of us ought to be asking ourselves is, which team am I on? Am I trying to live with one foot in, one foot out? How many of us have bought into the Babylonian way? A, a way characterized by, by, by sex, the love of money, power. These are just some of the hallmarks of Babylon. How are you doing personally with living up to God's standard of sexual integrity? Are you existing in in pure relationships, or are you in impure relationships? Are you walking in the light, or are you secretly indulging in the darkness? How are you doing with your money? Are you generously giving to God, or are you selfishly hoarding it to yourself? How are you doing with pride? Are you living life open-handed? 
or are you closing your fists and closing your life to whatever God wants to bring into your life? How many of us are, are, are saying, I, I don't need God. I'm totally in control. I'm totally self-sufficient. I don't want to depend on anyone or anything. These are the marks of a losing team. And Jesus today is calling us, abandon that way. Jump ship. That team, in the end, goes down and goes down hard. There's still time to jump on the Jesus bandwagon. You better get moving. That's the first response, is to join the winning team. The first judgment is Jesus judging depravity. Here's the second one. It's the judgment of the devil. Now, you keep hearing us uh, say, in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus wins. Well, how does he do it? Well, let's read. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. So as the Apostle John is scribbling down this revelation, he looks up and goes, uh-oh, here comes the king on his white horse, gallantly and victoriously re-entering the picture the return of the king. This isn't baby Jesus in Bethlehem. This is King Jesus in battle. And his name is faithful and true. He is trustworthy and always comes through on his promises. Amen. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Eyes like fire, nothing escapes the gaze of King Jesus. On his head are many crowns, the royal diadem. He's got a name that no one knows but he himself. What we know of Jesus right now, we only know in part. But for all who have trusted in him, we will have an eternity to endlessly discover more of who he is. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. His robe reflects the blood he shed to win the victory. And his name is the word of God. Not a word, the word. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. He didn't send the armies out on his behalf. They were following him. He's out in front leading the charge. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The sword coming out of his mouth is the perfect standard of justice by which all of mankind will be judged. And he's coming to rule. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The King to rule all kings, the Lord to rule all lords all hail king jesus <laughs> and he takes his position with his armies in the final battle known as armageddon and on one side are those following jesus on the other are those following the antichrist verse 19 then i saw the beast 
and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Well, this was kind of a letdown. I expected an epic battle on one side, Jesus Christ and all his battle armies. And on the other side, Antichrist and all his armies. And, and there's going to be this huge struggle and a back and forth and who will win. But that's not what happened. In a flash, the battle was over. How many of you remember the name Marvis Frazier? Anyone? Okay. Probably not. <laughs> I bet most of you know the name of his more famous father, Joe Frazier. Anyone know that name? Smokin' Joe Frazier was a Hall of Fame heavyweight champion boxer. He was the first ever to beat the great Muhammad Ali. Smokin' Joe had a son, Marvis Frazier, and Marvis wanted to follow in his old man's footsteps, be a boxer like him. Marvis was an incredible all-around athlete, but he put all of the other sports aside so he could focus just on boxing. And he started working his way up the ranks, beating opponent after opponent. And he rose so fast through the boxing world that he earned a fight with the number two boxer in the world, some guy named Mike Tyson. Now, Marvis Frazier was younger and faster than Tyson. And these were supposed to be strengths that would help him to defeat Mike Tyson. Well, let's see how the fight went. I want to show you a clip. Take a look. That was the whole fight. <laughs> One of our pastors this past week was, was talking about how he uh, bought a Mike Tyson fight on pay-per-view and he invited all his buddies over, went into the kitchen to grab some nachos, came out and everything was over. <laughs> this is what the Battle of Armageddon is going to be like. Before you even finish saying the word Armageddon, it's over. For anyone who stepped into the kitchen to grab some nachos, you're going to come back and there's the Antichrist in the corner, knees buckled, head spinning, having no idea what hit him. This is what Jesus is going to bring. Forget Iron Mike Tyson, we got Iron King Jesus. <laughs> now listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, this stuff ought to fire you up. Because those who've placed their faith in him, understand this, that the book of Revelation was never meant to scare you, it was meant to strengthen you to remind you that in the end, Jesus wins. And all of your hardship, all represented by the enemy, is going to be defeated soundly. Let's jump to Revelation 20, verse 1. 
says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Finally, the perpetrator was apprehended and captured and put in a holding facility. The devil is being brought to justice. And this is a period known as the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year period in which Jesus Christ himself will reign on the throne here on earth in our presence. And Satan will be locked away for 1,000 years with no ability to deceive anyone. It's a fascinating time. It's, It's hard to imagine what that will be like. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there are exciting days ahead. Here's a bit more detail about this millennial kingdom. Verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So during this period, the inhabitants of the earth will be two groups. One will be all of the Christians who had died in the past. They will be resurrected and given special resurrected or glorified bodies in which we will co-reign with Christ. That's the first population. The second population will be all of the people who trusted in Jesus who survived these tribulations. They'll be together. As for everyone who died never believing in Christ, We'll hear about them in a minute in the second resurrection. But this is, this is what it's going to be like in this thousand-year time. It's, it's so hard to imagine. What will life be like with Jesus with us? Living in peace without the devil able to influence, influence us at all. It's very, very fascinating to think about. Well, at the end of this 1,000-year period, God decides to do something very interesting Look at this, verse 7. It says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. So what did Satan do while he was in prison for 1,000 years? Did he reconsider his ways? (laughs) Did he think, you know, I didn't make the best choices when I was free. But when I get out, I'm going to be changed. I'm just going to live a quiet life as a pitchfork salesman. (laughs) Not a chance. What did Satan do for a thousand years? His bitterness toward Jesus only deepened. For a thousand years, he plotted his revenge. And the second he was released. He was right back to his old tricks, deceiving the nations. Now, th- this, is, this is hard to imagine. Like, how could people be deceived when Jesus is physically and literally here on earth with us? Well, here's how. Because all of the people who survived that tribulation, they're going to have kids. And their kids are going to have kids. 
and their kids are going to have kids. And over the course of a thousand years, the earth will be repopulated with people who've never known a world apart from King Jesus on the throne. And just like in the days of the Garden of Eden, the ancient serpent will slither his way back into human hearts and start whispering in their ears, hey, who voted Jesus as king? I don't recall getting a vote. I think it's time for a regime change. He's keeping something from us. Who's in? And just like that, people will begin to follow him and he will amass an entire army ready to give it one last shot to take down Almighty God. As if they didn't learn from Armageddon. If that was any kind of indication how this next battle will go, things will be very bad for those who rebel against Jesus. Verse 9 continues. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Once again, Jesus is victorious, and now Satan receives his final sentencing. He is cast away forever, never to be released on the world ever again. This is the judgment of the devil. So again, what can we do to respond to this? This is something that's going to happen in the future. What can I do right now? Here's what I believe we can do right now. Our second response is this. Admit the core problem. Now, now what do I mean by that? Let me explain. So one of the most fascinating verses for me as, I, as I've been reading through this and, and thinking about this 1,000-year period, this millennial kingdom, I'm just so intrigued by the fact that people are going to be able to be deceived. Verse 7 of Revelation 20, when the 1,000 years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations. How will they be tricked? I mean, they're going to be in the presence of a resurrected Jesus and resurrected Christians. <laughs> How can they be deceived? Here's how. Because you can remove the devil, but that does not remove sin. The removal of the devil does not equate the removal of sin in our lives. All of that is still implanted in the hearts of the people. Jesus' brother James had great insight on this. This is James 1.14. He said, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Satan is the enticer. But what he's doing is appealing to what's already here. All of the evil in the world is not the devil's fault. It's ours because it exists as sin in our hearts. All of the negative behavior that comes out of our lives and all of the destructive behavior we see in the world comes out of the problem of sin. That's actually the problem. And admitting the core problem is taking a look at myself and saying, okay, when all, when all of the behavior, what is really, what's really the core problem here? And friends, this is a very difficult thing for us to, for, for us to admit in our lives. When you look at your work, what is the core problem there of why you're so upset with your job? Is it because you have a micromanaging boss or is it because you're not doing your job? 
when you look at all of the drama in, in your relationship, is it because the other person is crazy? Or is it because you always run away from conflict? What's the core problem? Why didn't you get picked? Is it because everything is political? It's all about who you know. Or is it because you had a really bad attitude? See, we love to blame the devil. The devil's trying to take me down. The devil's trying to get my money. The devil's trying to get me fired. The devil is often a very easy scapegoat because it, it allows us to not have to look in the mirror. And that's a tough spot to be. And when we're willing to admit the core problem that it's actually not the devil, it's me. And even if I remove the devil, it doesn't remove the sin in my life. Only faith in Jesus can do that. And that's something all of us are going to have to stand in account for. So the first response is to join the right team. And the second response is to admit the core problem. First judgment is the judgment of depravity. Second judgment is the judgment of the devil. The third judgment is the judgment of the dead. When I say dead, I don't mean just physically dead. I mean spiritually dead because you can be physically alive but spiritually dead. And for all of the people who died apart from Christ, they are going to be judged again. Read along with me. This is Revelation 20, verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. This is what's referred to as the great white throne of judgment. And after Satan has been dealt with, then comes the final sentencing for all who are part from Christ. They will be resurrected and brought before King Jesus. And there'll be no place to run, no place to hide. And they're going to have to give an account for their lives. And there's going to be books that will be read of every sin they've ever committed as charges against them so that no piece of it's without excuse. I remember years ago, I got a piece of mail from the city that I lived in. And I assumed it was going to be junk and I would just throw it away. But I opened it up and it was a bill. I got ticketed. $200 for running a red light. I said, this can't be right. I'm a safe driver. When the light's yellow, I slow down. I don't go speeding through red lights. This is clearly someone's mistake. I'm not paying this. And I flip the paper over, and there's a picture of my car <laughs> going through a red light and the person sitting in the front seat is me. <laughs> Pretty hard evidence against me. And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, oh, busted. And my son heard me talking about it. He goes, oh, I want to see. You know, he looks at the picture. Sure enough, there I am, sitting in the front seat with my sunglasses on, big goofy look on my face. My son thought it was so funny, he kept the ticket in his room for like a year. <laughs> But honestly, I think this is what it's going to be like at the great white throne of judgment. People are going to say, whoa, 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 I'm not guilty. I didn't do any of that stuff. There, there's been a mistake. 
And Jesus is going to open up the book and say, actually, no. Because you remember on February 17th when you were at your grandmother's funeral and for the first time you started thinking about life and eternity and you started thinking about Jesus, but instead of in that moment surrendering, you walked out into the parking lot and smoked some marijuana so you can kill the emotions. Remember that? Then you remember a couple years later, at two in the morning, on June 4th, when you're thinking about your life and its meaning and if it had any purpose, and even in your heart, you started to try to pray to God to reveal it to you, and then you convince yourself, no, this is, this is dumb, I'm not gonna do this anymore, and you went to sleep, you remember that? And then you remember uh, several years later on April 3rd when you were sitting in church and the pastor gave an invitation for you to pray to receive Christ and to repeat after him and pray this prayer and make it your own and you started doing that but then you said no and you let your pride take over and you said I got more time and you remember that? And then another book is gonna be opened. It's called The Lamb's Book of Life, a registry of all who've placed their faith in Jesus. And he's gonna check to see if your name's in it. And if it's not, game over. Friends, this is eternal hell we are talking about here. Now, I, I don't know uh, if, it's, if it's a literal lake, but it is eternal hell. Listen to these verses continue. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't like talking about this stuff. It's one of the most uncomfortable things to talk about. But this much I know, hell is real. And some of us would rather dismiss it or downplay it or full-on deny it. Friends, I don't want to find out the truth after it's too late. So how do we respond now to this judgment of the dead? Well, for all of you who've already placed your faith in Jesus, here's your response. The first is join the right team. The second is admit the core problem. Here's the third, share the good news. I bet all of you know somebody who has not given their life to Jesus. You might be able to picture their face right now. That person is someday on track to stand before Jesus at the great white throne of judgment and receive their final sentencing. And when that happens, it's too late. And for some of us, this troubles our spirit so much. And we say, how can this be? How can a loving God do this? Because he's a God of love and a God of justice. He would not be a loving God if he allows injustice to go unpunished. And we might say, well... Come on, won't he just give people a second chance? Yes, it's called life. And all throughout the book of Revelation, we see him giving people opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance. Wake up, open your eyes, these things are happening. Turn your life to Jesus before it's too late. This is what the fasting challenge is all about. It's praying for somebody who does not yet know Christ. And, and as you feel the pain of things like not being able to drink your coffee in the morning or not watching Netflix or not eating lunch, let that pain remind you to pray for somebody who does not yet know Jesus. And what if God answers that prayer and says, you're the one who's gonna share the good news? What is the good news? Here is the good news. 
that Jesus came from heaven to earth, took on flesh of a human, lived a perfect sinless life so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins. And all who place their faith in Jesus, an exchange takes place. He gets our death, we get his life. He gets our sin, we get his forgiveness. He gets our wrongness, we get his rightness or his righteousness. Who is the person in your life that needs to hear this good news before it's too late? And perhaps you're sitting in this room and saying, I'm the person. I'm the one who needs to hear the good news. I'm the one who needs to respond. Friends, this is not a game. Life is short. We have no guarantees on it. Where does Jesus sit in your story? If you've never given your life to him, let's make sure you don't walk out of this building today without taking care of the most important decision you'll ever have, and that is to experience the love of Jesus and escape the judgment of Jesus by placing your faith in him. And so if you've never intentionally prayed to receive Christ in your life, I wanna help you do that right now. In fact, I wanna ask everybody to just bow your heads. Just bow your heads right now. And I wanna speak into the life of that person right now. You know you. You know you better than anybody else knows you. And you know where your heart is today. And if you wanna accept Christ into your life, I wanna give you a prayer that you could pray. You just repeat these words after me in the silence of your own heart. I'll give you the words. You've gotta pray them in faith. And so if you're ready now to give Jesus your heart, then repeat after me. Jesus, today I invite you in. You lift those words in the silence of your heart straight to heaven. Jesus, today I invite you in. I admit I am a sinner. I can't save myself but I believe you can save me. Today, I place my faith in you. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. And so I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you take over my life. Change me from the inside out so that I could live a life that honors you. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I wanna encourage you to take your next step. After service is over, out in the lobby is a table under a sign that says next. You can't miss it. There's people waiting there to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to take your next step. Tell them, today I, I invited Christ into my life. What do I do now? They're ready to have that conversation with you. Or maybe you want to take a different next step. Maybe you want to join a small group or you want to get more involved in serving or you, you need some assistance, you need somebody to talk with. Stop by that table that says next. Or you can get out your phone and text the word next to 909-281-7797. One of our staff people will receive that text and they'll interact with you just through some messages to help you do what, what you believe God is calling you to do next. Don't stay where you are. Let God call you 
into what he wants for you. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797 or stop by the table after the service. Friends, by the end of Revelation chapter 20, God finally puts an end to all of evil. But the story doesn't just end there. You see, life with Jesus is not just the absence of bad. It's the presence of good. It's the presence of God. And next week, we're going to talk all about what is ahead for those who follow Jesus this amazing future glory. So be thinking now of who you can invite with you to come to church to hear about the amazing promises God has in store for all who trust in him. In the meantime, let's remember, join the right team. Jump ship off of whatever other team you're on. Jump on the Jesus bandwagon. It's not too late. Admit the core problem. It's sin in our lives that drives the behavior. Let's stop lying to ourselves and give it over to God and say, God, help me deal with this. And also, let's share the good news. Someone in your life needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Lord knows there's enough bad news in the world. We need to hear the good news, and that is the fact that there is a hope and a peace and a forgiveness and true love that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our creator, our redeemer, and our coming king. To him be the glory, to him be the victory. Let's follow after him today. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. Come on, let's pray together. King Jesus, we worship you. We thank you. We ask that you strengthen us to hold on until the final victory. I wonder if there's anybody in here who's having a tough time holding on. You're on the wrong team and you're even feeling this, the same emotions as those in Babylon. You're mourning the, the loss of your sin. Maybe you're unwilling to admit the problem. Maybe you haven't you're, you're struggling. You just say, Pastor, I could use some prayer. I need strength. I'm struggling. Would you lift your hand so I can know to pray for you? Just lift it up all around the room. Say, Pastor, I'm struggling. I need you to pray for me. I need strength. Lord, for all those lifting their hands, God, give them strong backs and strong needs and strong resolve to stay faithful, to not cave to the Babylonian way, to continue to come after you. I wonder if there's anybody in here who said, today was the day I finally gave in, I finally surrendered, I finally asked Jesus to come into my life. Would you raise your hand so that I could pray for you as well? Just lift your hand up all over the room. Just lift up your hand. Yes, I see you, brother. I see you. I see you. Thank you. I see you in the back. Amen. Praise the Lord. I see you right there, brother. Amen. Lord, for those who just prayed. God, I, I ask that today would be a watershed day where from this moment forward, things change. Lord, I pray that their, their decision to follow you is, is a sincere one, Lord. I, I rejoice in the fact that today their name went in the book. Not the bad book, but the good book. The Lamb's book of life, Lord. And I pray that you give them a security and a hope and a peace to walk with you in this new life. Lord, as we continue to worship you with our gifts, may we be reminded that riches are not what we place our hope in. 
you alone are faithful and true. And so may our act of worship through our giving be a reminder of where our true help comes from. Lord God, we love you. And we ask, even so, come soon. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. And if you believe it is a church, then let somebody say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in.